Husbands, I have a question for you. When did you stop beating your wife? No, don't answer that. I'm just kidding. The answer is a trap. It's a false question. And if you've heard it before, you know exactly where I'm going with that. The whole premise of that question assumes that you were beating your wife, and so you had to have stopped at some point. To answer the question at all is to admit that you are abusive. You know, there's another false question just like that that we tend to ask about God. How could he let bad, good, bad things happen to good people? How could God let this happen to me? We don't see that it's a false question because we assume that God beats his wife. Our way of thinking about God, our understanding of him is deeply flawed. See, behind the question is an assumption. It's not really about God. It's an assumption about ourselves. We believe that we would love God if only good things came our way. If I lived in a mansion, then I would love God. If I had obedient kids, and maybe a live-in nanny to change the diapers. If I had meaningful work without stress or pitfalls that we so often experience in life, if, if I had just had enough money, resources, time, whatever it was, that I never had to worry about my needs ever again, if God gave me all of that, then I would love him. A frictionless life, we believe, would produce a flawless faith. We think that way because, you know, we tend to believe about ourselves what wouldn't make any sense in nature. It's like believing that, that diamonds are formed from coal by putting, you know, little, little balls of coal on lounge chairs at the beach and giving them, you know, little umbrella drinks to, to sip from rather than actually believing the way the diamonds are formed from coal is through thousands of tons of pressure in the depths of the earth. If anything, this passage from Lamentations proves how wrong our thinking about God is. Jeremiah switches from chapters 1 and 2 where he's talking about the collective, the national suffering that Israel and especially in Jerusalem his people are facing. He turns from his people to talk about his own personal struggle. In verse 1, he says, I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod, the rod of God's wrath. And yet, d- despite the fact that, that Jeremiah has been, as he says in verse 5, besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation, Despite the fact that he says in verse 17 that his soul is bereft of peace, that he's forgotten what happiness is. We see him, in spite of all of that, exhibiting in this passage the very height of communion with God. For Jeremiah, writing Lamentations, hope comes out of heartache. Light comes out of the darkness. 
That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, that, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's why his brother James wrote in James 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, fellowship with God isn't found in comfort and plenty. In the middle of one of the bleakest chapters, in one of the bleakest books of the Bible, we see the clouds part and the light of God's loving presence shines down on the prophet. It's out of the darkness of the destruction of Jerusalem and the anguish that he feels that Jeremiah writes verses 22 to 24 that are so familiar to us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And he goes on, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In order for us to understand God and ourselves, we have to stop thinking that God is a wife beater. I have to stop believing that I am really just a Porsche away from praising God's name. I have to recognize the truth of this passage, that there is hope in lament. There's hope in lament. And we really don't understand that, do we? That there is hope in lament. Why is that? Why do we have such a hard time with that idea, with that concept? When we talk about God and suffering, we we tend towards not reality and looking reality full in the face. And we tend towards recriminations, not reality. Recriminations or when you painstakingly evaluate a wrong that's been done in order to assign the blame to appropriate parties. It happens in Washington, D.C. all of the time. We have to make sure that we get the right people to get the right amount of blame so that every, all the blame gets spread in just the right places. We call a committee or a commission to develop a report to show who, who, who did what wrong at every step along the way to the crisis or the tragedy or whatever it was that happened. Often that's the way we Americans tend to conceive of justice. Dot every I, cross every T, make sure the right people are shown to be guilty. And I I think there's two reasons that we do that. One, we want to know who the bad guys are so that we can make them pay. And two, We want to make sure that we have extensive proof that we are not to blame. We think that recriminations is a safe way to deal with suffering. Because after all, I'm the good guy, right? I'm most likely a victim in this scenario and just about every scenario there is, if you just think of it in the right way. And that's why we tend to think that God beats his wife. Why does God let good things happen or bad good things happen to bad people? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? That's a recrimination question. We want to apportion blame out there. 
because we want to vindicate ourselves. We want to clear our name before the throne of Almighty God. Ultimately, what we really want is to avoid the difficult reality of, of the truth of ourselves. See, reality takes courage. Facing reality often offends our sensibilities. It reminds us of, of some of the fundamental truths of our very existence. You know, it says in Psalm 16, verse 2, that um, we have no good apart from God. David prays, I have no good apart from you. If that's true, that we have literally nothing good apart from God, then ask yourself this question. Is existence a good thing? Is it better to be or not to be? Don't start quoting Hamlet, please. If we have no good apart from God, then our very life, our very existence itself comes from Him. That's why Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, 28, that in Him we live and move and have our being. We have no being apart from being in God, a being connected to Him by His grace. See, our problem is that we see ourselves as independent, having some kind of independent existence apart from God. God's up there, we're down here. We've got our own thing going, and God sometimes comes in and out. Just as long as he comes in in a good way, then we're all right with it. Somehow we think we're able to stand on our own two feet before God, apart from God. We determine our own fates. We control our destiny. But Psalm 39, verse 5 says, Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Nothing. There is nothing in the universe that exists without the insurmountable, irrevocable will of the immeasurable, ineffable, omnipotent, and awesome God of all the universe. But if my approach to God is one of recriminations, if I'm focused on all the ways that I'm an innocent victim, then two things will happen to me. Eventually, one, I will divorce myself from reality, and eventually, two, it will become impossible for me to truly know God. The fact is that knowing God requires risk requires risk that, that I might be wrong in, in facing that fact. It takes risk to face the fact that I might be to blame. I have to risk the idea that, that in facing the mirror of reality, the person staring back at me may look a lot worse than I tend to think he does. And that, that's why God allows suffering. The weight, the burden, the agony of the darkness that we all face in this broken world, that weight is a gift. The suffering, the trouble, the chaos, the tragedy of evil are not good. Please don't hear me saying that evil is good and good is evil. That's not what I'm saying. 
It isn't good for Jeremiah in the midst of a destroyed Jerusalem to feel like God had stuck arrows in his kidneys, that he felt hunted like a bird, or that he had been made a laughingstock before his enemies that hated him. Those are not good things. They're awful things. But the important thing to remember in any discussion of good and evil is that the evil things are not God's fault. They're not God's fault, but they are a part of God's plan. They're a part of God's plan to bring us face to face with reality and the truth that we need His found out recently that a, a very dear friend of mine, someone that I've known for a long time, that they suffered abuse as a child. I've known this person for years, and, and yet it was the first time that they'd said this to me, that they'd told me about it, even though we're, we're quite close. I knew them when the, the abuse occurred, and I can remember what they were like then. Just a kid, a child, innocent, lovable. And when I heard, I had no idea. I was shocked. I was appalled at what they had been through. I, it, still, it still hits me hard just thinking about it. Someone bigger and stronger than them had taken advantage of them, robbed them of innocence, took something good, beautiful, made by God, took this young child and used them for pleasure in a hideous and dehumanizing way. Now, this, this had happened decades ago, but it was the first time I was hearing about it, and, and when I heard it, I was angry. I was devastated. I wept on, on the phone. I love my friend. And, and when I read Lamentations 3, verses 14 to 18, and preparing to, to, to preach this week, I, I thought of my friend and what they experienced. Those verses say this, I've become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He, God, has filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope. If I were to start figuring out who's to blame in my friend's situation, if I started doing recriminations, it wouldn't help my friend. Honestly, I'm not sure there's a lot that I can do for my friend. It happened a long time ago, and I, I don't have anything to give in this situation. I don't have anything to give, except maybe lament. 
except maybe the willingness to enter into their experience, enter into the, the tragedy, the sorrow, the pain with them. I don't know if there's anything I can do except to feel with them, to feel for them, and to make myself as available as humanly possible. My friend has not had a frictionless life. But my friend does have faith. In fact, in God's loving hands, he's used that friction despicable and unjust as it was, he's used that friction to lead my friend deeper and deeper into their need for God. Deeper into an experience of God's love. More fully into fellowship with the the holy, glorious personification enthroned at the center of all the universe. My friend has faith, at least in part, because there is hope in lament. If, if facing reality only meant looking at all the hard things about our lives and the world, if all it meant was that we would dwell in the suffering and the darkness, then there really wouldn't be any hope in it, and we shouldn't look at it, and we should just go about pretending it didn't happen. But facing the brutal reality of abusive parents, facing the evils of racism, facing the the tearing apart of our social fabric as a country, facing the horrors of the coronavirus and 500,000 people dead, as awful as those realities are, that is not all there is to reality. There is hope. There's hope in facing the darkness of reality because we can trust that God himself will meet us there. In in his experience of this tragedy that he's writing about in Lamentations, Jeremiah has watched horrors in war. He has seen innocent children slaughtered. He's watched the burning of his home down, probably the breaking down of buildings and neighborhoods that he once roamed as a child. He watched the the desecration and desolation of the temple, the place that God promised he would dwell with his people. He wrote this book. He wrote this book to, to process through before God in prayer, all the evil that his eyes had witnessed. And smack in the middle, right right in the center, at the very heart of this book that is a long lamentation, Jeremiah moves through lament to hope. Jeremiah prays, Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And what is it that he calls to mind? 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why can Jeremiah hope in the midst of the worst tragedy that he and his people have ever faced? He looked back. He looked back in faith at the promises of God and what God had done for his people in the past and knew from that reality the truth about God's character. That God is good. And when he does allow evil, he doesn't cause it, but he sometimes does allow it. When he does so, he does it with a redemptive purpose for those who love him. Jeremiah confesses just that truth when he prays in verses 31 to 33. The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Do you hear that? When God allows evil and suffering, he does not afflict from his heart. God's goal is not our punishment. Now, his desire revealed just a few years after this through the prophet Ezekiel is that no one should perish. What God wants for us in suffering, pain, trial, and affliction is that we would turn to him and have life, joy, and everlasting peace in the wonder of His gracious presence. And so, inviting us on the way to that joy, that peace, that life, Jeremiah says in verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Looking reality full in the face didn't ruin Jeremiah. It, it didn't destroy him, but it did break him. But in his brokenness, he knew that he could look at himself, he could repent of his sin, and he could return to the Lord. And he knew that when he did, God's mercy would never come to an end. <laughs> and the incredible thing is that Jeremiah knew all of that, and yet he didn't know the half of what you and I know. Jeremiah had no idea that God himself would come to earth. That God himself would take on our flesh and dwell among us. Jeremiah had no idea that God incarnate himself would come to Jerusalem. Not, not in a temple made of brick and stone, but in the temple of his own body, in the person of Jesus Christ himself. 
Jeremiah had no idea that that most holy, divine, glorious temple, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would be destroyed, ripped asunder upon the cross, not because he deserved judgment, but because we did. Not because Christ had broken covenant with God, but because we had. And in suffering in our place for our sins, Christ passed through the depths of the darkness. He endured the agony of the greatest evil ever seen under heaven, and he proved through it that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end. No, they are new every morning, especially on Easter morning. Great is God's faithfulness. There is hope in facing the reality of sin and suffering in this world. There is hope in letting yourself emotionally enter the experience of heartache and brokenness in this life, in yourself or in those around you to walk alongside them through suffering. Brothers and sisters, there is hope in lament. And it allows our souls to say, The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you that your faithfulness is so great and your mercy is ever new. We praise you, Father God, that though you dwell in the heights, you stooped to the lowest places. That Christ, you even descended to the pit, to the grave, to death itself. And that you did all of that in love for us. And while we may not be able to philosophically solve the problem of evil, we do know what your answer to evil is. It is your love displayed for us in the person of Christ suffering for our sake. Father, would you please open our hearts through the love that you've shown upon us in Christ Jesus. And in opening our hearts, would you allow us to feel the things that we don't want to? Would you allow us to look at the darkness that we've endured, the grievances we may harbor, the bitterness we cling to, would you enable us to let those things go? Would you enable us to love one another well enough to to walk with them in, in pain? And would you make us as the people of God in this place Salt and light. Light to people who are stuck in the darkness of a pandemic, who are stuck in the darkness of a thousand hurts. May we, Lord, through our witness, through our lives, shine the light of Christ on those who need it. We pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.